I hope there are some other kids live on this street. I used to be friends with this boy once who lived next door. He used to go down the bottom of his garden after tea to read comics. When it got dark, he switched a torch on and stayed out there till his mother shouted for him to come in. First time I talked to him through the fence, he said, Look, I've got nine brothers and sisters, so no offence, but I come out here for a bit of peace and quiet. At that time, in that place, you could hear gunfire most nights, army helicopters in the sky. Your bag got searched at a checkpoint if you wanted to go through the town centre, and if the women on our streets saw soldiers coming, they'd go outside and bang the bin lids together because sometimes the soldiers would stomp through the back gardens and smash down doors for no reason. But this boy, Michael, says, Trust me, it's worse in my house. There's no worse racket in the world than my family shouting over the top of the men ranting on the telly. I share my sweets with him through the hole in the fence, listen to him moan about his big sister who annoys him with her stupid laugh and her constant nail filing. I climb over and he shines his torch on my face and he sees my birthmark and he doesn't say anything about it. One evening, I'm over there. We're eating popping candy and looking at the sunset. Suddenly, we hear a noise, a rustling in the bushes. We shrink against the fence. A man steps onto the garden path. The porch light goes on. It'll be Michael's mum with the bin lid, but it's not. It's his sister, Orla, the annoying one with the nails and the laugh. We hold our breath. Orla glances back at the house, walks down the path and right up to the soldier. They whisper, and then they disappear behind the shed together for a long time. When they come out, she's doing up the buttons on her blouse. She hurries back up the path and he's gone into the dark of the lanes. A few nights later, two men come to Michael's house. They take off their balaclavas, their neighbours, dads from our street. Michael and all his brothers and sisters are crying and his mum's shaking and saying, for God's sake, take me. They say, calm down, Helen. We just need to talk to her. And they half lead, half carry Orla out the front door and into the back of a car. They brought her back the next day. She stopped laughing. The house was quieter after that. Their mum kept the back door locked and their garden grew over with weeds. Then one day, Debbie came home from shopping in the town. As she put her keys in the lock, the pavement shook and plumes of smoke started going up all over the city. She puts her bags down, looks at me doing my homework at the kitchen table and says, It's time to go. I went back downstairs. I walked into the kitchen. I opened all the cupboards, the drawer full of takeaway menus, the empty fridge. I read the sign above the sink that said, wash your hands in 10 different languages. I got two mugs off the mug tree. I wanted to make us a cup of tea, but there weren't any tea bags. Are you hungry? I'm fine. 
Do you know where the nearest supermarket is? The taxi driver said there's an abandoned one here. Is that true? He said they say it's haunted. Have you ever been inside? Do you get embarrassed by your parents? I don't like going shopping with Debbie. She talks to herself, puts things in the trolley and then puts them back on the shelf. She holds up the queue trying to pay with all these different vouchers. Do you know if there's any jobs going round here? I've done all sorts. Cleaning, cafes, clothes shops. I've got skills and experience. Customer service. Adaptability. I've worked with cosmetics. I can dig a grave. I worked on a chicken farm once. We got on a bus to the farm, which was really a factory... We sat in the back before dawn every morning and bounced around on wooden planks with the other workers. Exhaust fumes seeped through holes in the floor. None of us had the right papers, but the factory didn't care. A lot of those people were running away from a war across the border. Some of them were kids like me. I tried to make friends, but they stared at their feet. Each morning, Mike, the manager, gave us a pep talk. We all had to shout chicken challenge and high-five each other. Me and Debbie worked on the cutting line. We wore matching hairnets and rubber gloves. Our job was to run the chicken wings through a spinning saw. Sometimes the rubber gloves burst and cold chicken juice got splurted all over our hands. Some days there were accidents in the factory, but you just had to keep going, keep the system running. You couldn't be the weak link in the line. One day, Mike, the manager, says, People want more chicken. So, we're going to spin these saws faster. And from now on, you guys are going to stack the wings in threes when you put them through the saw. It's totally safe. Mike twirls his keys around his fingers. There's a picture of his kids on the key ring, smiling twin girls with red bows in their hair. Mike likes to talk about his little girls, how he was on holiday, and he went to this village which was by a beautiful beach, but so, so poor. The kids there had no school, no clean water, they all played in the dirt. Mike and his wife just looked at each other and said, Who wants to come back to America with us? And every single kid said, Yes, me, take me. So they picked the cutest two and got on a plane. It was that easy, Mike said. The girls have got new names, new clothes, new everything. They send money every month to their birth mother back in the village. Everybody wins, says Mike. On the factory floor, Mike starts to walk away. Then this girl, a girl who rides with us on the bus. I've never heard her speak before. She pulls off her hairnet and says... We're not doing that. Mike shouts, Now let's get back on it, people. Everything's quiet. Everybody's still. The stunners, the gutters, the pluckers, the bleachers, the factory holds its breath. A woman peels her gloves off, slaps them down and steps away from the line. Over on the deboning table, someone starts banging a knife. 
more knife handles join in the rhythm and people start chanting, strike, strike, strike. I look at Debbie, her eyes say, keep your head down, keep quiet. In the break room, people slap the girl on the back and ruffle her hair. Mike comes back down from the office and says, okay, just a sec, we need to check everybody's papers. Then just like that, we have to clear out our lockers, hand in our uniforms and leave without our wages. The next morning, Debbie and me are on another bus, headed out of town, our suitcases knocking around in the hold. Debbie sleeps. I watch cornfields roll by. I wonder if that girl shouldn't have done what she did. Or maybe it was worth it. What do you think? I walked into the living room. I pulled up the blind and sat on the sofa. It had a plastic cover on it. On the coffee table there was a newspaper. The headline said, enough is enough. I took off my shoes and lay back on the crackly plastic. We were on a train this one time. We shivered in the corridor outside the toilet and hid from the ticket inspector. I stole a Snickers bar from the buffet trolley when it came past. The buffet lady saw me and she didn't say anything. I saw the tattoo on her arm saying, Sophia. I got this thought in my head then. I thought, I wonder, does my dad have a tattoo of my name on his arm? Before I could stop myself, I said it out loud. Debbie just looked at me and said, I don't think so, Maya. I doubt it. One time, we were watching telly, and this girl met her long-lost father on Oprah, and I said, I wonder if that will ever happen to me. And Debbie said, it's not like that. He was a stranger. I wouldn't even know his face. And she changed the channel on the TV. Do you watch a lot of TV? I watch too much, I think. But some stuff, it's educational. I saw this programme once. It was when Hitler was trying to turn the world German. He moved a load of German families into Poland. To make room for them, he moved the Polish people out of their houses. A knock on the door in the middle of the night. A truck with the engine running outside. Men in uniform, arms folded in every room, watching while the parents try to pack. The children start to cry and ask questions. Where are we going? The next afternoon, the new German family turn up at an office. They're given a key with an address on a big tag and a map. They're told to go and find their new home. The government made these propaganda pictures, smiling new families coming through the door of a sparkling new home. But then on the programme, this lady, a woman who'd moved into one of those stolen homes, she said, We fumbled with the lock. We opened the door and it was dark. All the blinds were drawn. The house was a mess. It was in chaos. You could tell that people had left in a hurry. We were frightened. I lay on the sofa 
and looked around the room. There was a picture on the wall of all these famous places round the world. The Taj Mahal, the Statue of Liberty, the Houses of Parliament, Ayers Rock, the Eiffel Tower. There was a plane flying across the top of the picture, writing some words in its vapour trail. It said, living the dream. After the train, we got a ferry. Debbie told me to go up on the deck and try and spot the Eiffel Tower, but all I could see was rocks and grey buildings in the distance. It was raining when we got to where we were staying. It was a grey tower block on the fifth floor. The landlord came in without knocking. He sat on the sofa and smoked. He watched Debbie while she counted out the rent. He said, I've got mouths to feed too. She stood on a chair to show him the crack in the wall where cockroaches came out of. He shrugged and said, you get what you get. One evening, these three boys from our block were walking home from football. They noticed a police car coming up the street behind them. They all knew the rule. When you see a police car, you run, whether or not you've got a reason to. They ran right through the neighbourhood, through underpasses, cut across estates, but the car kept following. They were out of breath. It was getting dark. All the streets looked the same. They came to this place with a metal fence with danger signs all around and wires and pylons inside. They jumped the fence and crouched down low when the headlights swung by. Then... Boom. Tens of thousands of volts of electricity. Two of them died straight away. The next few nights, I watch from my fifth floor window. People stand in the streets. There's a sound of window smashing. Then the fires start. Cars, buildings, the neighbourhood starts to burn. Debbie gets home from her job at the supermarket, puts the chain across the door, puts earplugs in and gets her eye mask, goes to bed and waits for it all to be over. Have you ever gone outside in your pyjamas? I did. I put on my trainers and a hoodie over the top. I slip the chain off the door. I stand on the scrubby patch of grass outside our block. There's car alarms, a smell of smoke and petrol. A group of people run out from behind the building across the street. They've got scarves covering their faces. One of them holds a bottle with something inside it. As they run past me, a siren sounds suddenly closer. The masked figure crouches, sets the bottle on the pavement, holds a lighter to the top and a flame springs up, and then they disappear into the night. I pick it up. The glass is hot, too hot to hold for long. I just want to see what it feels like to throw something, to smash something, to start something. I raise my arm and my hood falls away. I want to forget everything. Being a daughter, being a girl, being 13. There's a flash. Someone shouts. My arm falls and I drop the bottle. Fire spills all over the pavement, runs into the gutter, licks at my trainers, at the edges of the grass. I turn and run inside. I'm fine. Next morning, the landlord, 
lets himself in and winks at Debbie eating breakfast in her bathrobe. Brought you the news, he says, and he drops the paper on top of her plate. The headline says, Les enfants perdus, which means the lost children. And a photo, a girl on a dark street. Curly hair, birthmark, it's me. Debbie just sits there when the landlord tells us we'll have to go. He says, I am evicting you with immediate effect. She says, I'm still in my freaking dressing gown. He says, 30 minutes, I want you gone. I start clearing up the breakfast stuff. I knock the milk bottle and it spills all over the table and she says, Christ, Maya, haven't you done enough? Have you ever slept in an airport? We did, for three nights. I look at the families waiting to go on holiday. I fall asleep and my head drops onto Debbie's shoulder. She pulls away like she's been stung. My head bangs against the hard metal armrest and I feel like saying, what did you do that for? But I just say, I'm fine. Debbie doesn't say anything for a long time. Then later, when it's dark out on the runways and you can see the lights on the control tower, looking straight ahead, she says, Maya, you've got to understand... I'm busting a gut just to keep us alive here. It's all I've got. I can't do any more than that at the moment. And then she says, Please don't touch me. I just can't stand it right now. 